Before we start this week's episode, I wanted to let our listeners know that this conversation includes mention of sexual violence and childhood sexual trauma. There are no graphic descriptions, but if this subject area is not for you, we encourage you to catch back up with us next week. Thanks. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Starring Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany, Realm presents the official continuation of the hit TV series Orphan Black. It's been eight years since Project Leda was destroyed for good, but all is not well. When a dangerous genetic technology is stolen and an unknown clone appears, Kasima and the other clones are forced to struggle for survival. In Orphan Black, the next chapter, we follow the original Sestras, Sarah, Allison, Kasima, and those they love have been free to live quiet, anonymous lives. But that anonymity comes at a cost. Kasima is unable to pursue the cutting-edge science that saved her life, Sarah's daughter Kira is suffocated by her mother's insistence on secrecy, and Charlotte, the youngest Leda clone, questions why her family gets to survive while other unaware clones get sick and die. Everything changes when Vivi Valdez, a CIA agent, discovers she too is a clone and goes rogue. Vivi's pursuit of the truth brings chaos to the original clone club when one of them is accused of murder. To prove their innocence, they must step out of the shadows and publicly claim the secret they've sacrificed everything to protect. Catch up now before the season finale on June 11, 2021, and season two will launch in October of this year. Comicbook.com says a truly thrilling sequel that captures the mystery, humanity, and heart of the original series. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is a genuinely great sequel, one that the original series and its clone club of fans absolutely deserve. Listen to Orphan Black, the next chapter, available wherever you get your podcast. Danica Kelly is a poet and the author of two collections of poetry, Bestiary, which was released in 2016 and won a Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize, and The Renunciations, which came out in May from Grey Wolf Press. Her poems have been published in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The Atlantic, and other places, and she teaches poetry at the Iowa Writers Workshop. She came on the podcast to talk about an event in her 20s that radically changed her relationships with both her parents, which opened the way for a radically different relationship with herself, building a life with her own wants and needs at the center. We also talked about Western films and therapy and how she thinks about using her work to interrogate the inner lives of men like her father who do great harm, among many other things. Hope you enjoy it. So uh, in... August of 2008. Um, it was a Sunday. It was the weekend before I started my PhD program. It was like, like actually the Sunday before classes started. And I was, uh, I had gotten accepted into this PhD program at Vanderbilt in English. And I moved to Nashville from Austin and I had had a really good summer, which was, it was a little bit rare. I think at that point in my life, um, 
so it's the weekend. Um, it's the morning. It's Sunday morning. And I get a call from my sister and she's like sobbing, like full out, like crying. Um, my mom was in the hospital. Uh, she was in a coma. Uh, and the night before she'd gone into the emergency room with abdominal pain, um, was given morphine and she coded. And it took the doctors 11 minutes to resuscitate her. And then she was in a coma for a few days. But my sister called me like the next morning. And so I packed up my little dog who was new. He's very old now. But he was brand new then. <laughs> He's like five months old. Uh, and we drove from Nashville to Pine Bluff where my, where my family lives. And uh, I went right to the hospital and waited with my family um, for just to see what would happen. The doctors thought she might come out of the coma, but they, it was a little bit touch and go. She was in ICU. Uh, and thankfully a few days later, she woke up, uh, but she couldn't speak. And we were all very confused. Like she just like did not have, she was babbling. Like it was like baby talk. Uh, and you know, so we were just waiting. The doctor was like, maybe if y'all play some music, that'll bring her back to herself. And so we brought in some of her favorite music, which included at the time, there was like gospel music, there was blues, weirdly Lil Wayne's Lollipop was one of her favorite songs <laughs> at the time. So we played that kind of a lot. Uh, and that seemed to help. So within like, like by the end of that week, I would say like her language had started to come back uh, and she started to recognize us. Um, and, uh, I'll just say before, like I get into the order of recognition, uh, that I'm the oldest, um, but I was also the one who moved away. My brother and my sister still live, um, in the same town as my parents. And so, uh, she recognized my dad first, which made the most sense because they were, they got together when they were children. <laughs> um, like they were both teenagers when they, when they got together. Um, and then she recognized my sister. Uh, and then she recognized kind of her brother and my brother, but she would get them a little bit mixed up. Uh, and then she recognized her sister and then she recognized me, which gave me some feelings. Um, you know, sad face. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that of course. Really hard. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, but that next weekend I went back to Nashville and I went and I, you know, I missed the first week of classes. I let everyone know all of my instructors, my professors know what was going on. Um, and I discussed with some of them the possibility of doing a medical leave. Uh, but I decided not to do that. So for the rest of the semester, I was driving back and forth between Pine Bluff and Nashville um, to visit my family, to sit with my mom, to give my sister a break. She had just had a baby. Um, but I, and, it, and he was our first baby and now he's the oldest baby. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a lot. It was, that was a lot of driving every weekend. I would leave on a Friday and come back on Sunday and, um, just hang out, uh, and just try to be helpful. Um, but my dad wanted me to quit the program. He wanted me to quit. He wanted me to move to Pine Bluff. He wanted me to help out with my mom. And that makes a kind of sense to me. Uh, in terms of just how my family operates, like historically, like the oldest daughter um, would be the one to help out if, especially if the mom got sick. Uh, and I did not do that. 
I decided to stay in uh, Nashville. I was committed to the PhD program, to its structure, to the safety of it. Um, like I got a stipend. I knew what I was supposed to do, you know? Um, and, and when my dad asked me to, when he brought up the possibility of me moving to Pine Bluff, a place I had never lived, <laughs> I, uh, I, I told him, no, I said, what would I do here? And he was like, you would take care of your mom. And I was like, how would I live? <laughs> like, how would I pay for anything? And he was, um, I think he found that really frustrating. Um, I know that he did. And so, and this put a lot of burden on my sister, which was difficult for, I mean, I say it's difficult for me, but also I wasn't there. So like, how difficult was it? Like, that's one of the things that I like continue to wrestle with, but I had made a decision um, to put what I needed at the center of my life over what my family needed, which again, was a very different kind of decision than most women in my family made and continue to make. Was that uh, a new kind of decision for you? Or was that something you were used to doing? I had had some experience in doing it because I had left. I had gone to grad school in... So when I went to undergrad, I had wanted to move away. And my mom told me that I could not move away. <laughs> she said, who's going to visit you? <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll go to the school in town. That's great. Uh, but then when I went to the, I, I got into an MFA program, uh, at, at the Michener Center at the University of Texas. And, um, that was the first time I really, I was on my own and I was making decisions for me. And I had like, this is my third therapist. Um, but it was a little bit of a different experience because I was paying um, to see her. So, uh, but she helped me figure out like how to, it was the first time that I set boundaries, like with my mom you know, and that was really important uh, to learn how to do. And I'm glad, I'm grateful that I figured out how to do that before she got sick. Um, because to, to be clear about this, like her memory was really fractured. It continues to be fractured. Her short-term memory was virtually non-existent for the first like year and a half. Um, and it's much better now. Uh, and her long-term memory, she doesn't have access to all of it. Um, and there was something about that moment where she didn't recognize me or where I was like the last to be recognized, where, I, where it felt like I, like I was sort of loose in some way. Like I was no longer, I, I couldn't define myself as like her daughter in the same way because we no longer shared experiences that made up that relationship. Like I had them, but she didn't have them. And that was really like, I was, I continue to be actually devastated by this because there's also nowhere to put it because she's still around, which I'm grateful for, but she's not quite my mom. She's like a version of my mom. Uh, it's still like funny and sweet and mean a little bit, not as mean <laughs> as she was. <laughs> but all of this is to say like my life had really been defined by my relationship with her specifically. Um, and so to make the decision to not come back or to not move to Pine Bluff to help was, um, was a, was a big, was a big deal. I think like no one talked about it as a big deal. Um, and I, and I think that I was, I'm an outlier in my family in a lot of ways. And a lot of, many of my decisions are opaque to my family. Like they don't quite understand anything that I'm doing. <laughs> and that's been the case for like, you know, over 
like it's been like 15 years now. They're like, we don't know. Um, <laughs> but there's something about being affiliated with school that my family generally supports. They're like, oh, she's in school. Right. She's going to school. Uh, and so there's, some, so it's like, I was kind of in a strange position where I was making an unconventional choice, mm-hmm. but I had kind of the, the, I don't know, like the, the romance of school to balance that out in some way. Um, so I didn't get like a lot of pushback except for my dad who stopped talking to me. So my mom didn't remember me and my dad stopped talking to me. And my, and I think, so I'd gone back for Christmas and it was my birthday. My birthday is right around Christmas. And, uh, he did not talk to me the whole time I was there and he did not say happy birthday. And he didn't, you know, like he just like ignored me and I felt so relieved. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like it hurt a little bit. But as I was observing it, I was like, oh, I'm not doing what he wants me to do. So he's punishing me. But actually, the punishment is not punishment for me. Because part of the reason, so, you know, um, if you've read the book, um, I do write about my experience of childhood sexual abuse. And he he sexually abused me um, when I was little, when I was like, like a very little kid. Um and it, part of the reason that I was connected to him in the degree, to the degree that I was, was because of my mom. My mom kept everyone together. Like she was like the nucleus. And without her, we just started to like drift apart, you know? And so he stopped talking to me and I was so relieved. <laughs> like, I think that was like the first feeling after after the shock of realizing what was happening. And I was like, oh, we're not talking to each other. Okay. Uh, and I was back again for his birthday, which was in February. Uh, and I, or maybe I wasn't, but I did not say, I have not said happy birthday to him since then. Like that year that my mom got sick was the last time that he and I exchanged like pleasantries. And, and it's been great. Um, <laughs> it's been actually the, it's been the easiest thing. And, and, that's come out of this in some ways because, and this is the reason I was thinking about this for it, like in terms of threshold uh, is because I crossed into a space where I was, my life was no longer defined by my parents and what they needed for me. And that gave me freedom and space to begin like this, journey of figuring out what I needed like what I needed not what not what not what my parents needed for me because my parents were very much like because they were my dad was 17 when I was born my mom was 19 so they were very young parents and at a certain point they were like they needed to be parented and sometimes they would look to us to do that me and my siblings and I was free from having to parent anybody and I could just like figure out how to take care of myself and I don't know, like that, that was wild. <laughs> like sometimes I think about it, and I'm just like, I don't think it would have happened if my mom hadn't gotten sick and my dad had not stopped talking to me. Like I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't have this relationship to myself. Yeah. It's interesting because like 
what you're describing is this really dramatic change, but it happened sort of all of a sudden and not because you, uh, like, I mean, you made a choice, but it was sort of like it happened around you, but it was this really big shift that, you know, that like was, you know, partially, like that was totally unexpected, right? It wasn't like Mm -hmm. you worked your way up to it and Mm -hmm. said, okay, this is, this is the choice I'm making. It just sort of, uh, the situation chose itself in a way, Mm -hmm. um, which like, I don't know. I want, at what point did you realize what had happened or what was happening? I don't think I realized. I recognized that moment, like that sort of shift that happened in those like six months as important. But how to say this? But I don't think I realized what it allowed me to do until the theory was published, until my first book was published. And I was talking with someone else about it. I was talking with uh, Kava Akbar about this in an interview. And I was like, oh, I got free. And then I got to figure out what that looked like for me. I got to like, um, like in my, so in my family, uh, men are at the center. Men are at the center of everything. Even if they're awful, it doesn't matter. They're just what they need, what they want is very much at the center of most women's lives in my family. And I started to like, after that break, like, especially with my dad, but I think it, again, like that wouldn't have been possible if my mom hadn't gotten sick and I hadn't sort of lost in some ways that sort of core identity of daughter to, to her. Um, I don't think I would have started to like remove men from the center of my life, <laughs> which has been great. Like men are not at the center of my life. Uh, like what men want, what men need. I like, it is, it's not even tertiary. It's like whatever's under that, you know, it's, and it's, it feels really great. (laughs) It's just like, it feels like a different kind of energy. Uh, But I didn't know that I could put myself at the, at the center of my life because that had never been modeled for me. No woman in my family had ever modeled that. No woman in my family. Well, I have an aunt, my mom's youngest sister um, who kind of has it. But even then, like her son, who was wonderful, like I love my cousin, he's, he's a sweet man, um, but she was a single mom. So he was at the center, right? So either it's children or it's men. And I don't have kids and I'm a lesbian. So <laughs> there's just like no opportunity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some big structural factors there. <laughs> so it's like, who comes into like the center? And it's me. Right? I get to figure out like what I care about, what I'm committed to, who I love, what that love looks like. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out healthy boundaries in romantic relationships, um, in friendships. It took me a long time to figure out how to be vulnerable. Um, but I had the space and safety and resources to do that um, because I was in this grad program. Uh, that was close enough to my family to drive back if I needed to go back. But far enough away that they never came to see me. So Yeah. Yeah. What did it feel like to realize that now you had the opportunity to put 
yourself and what you wanted and what you felt or what you believed at the center of your life. I'm just trying to imagine what that realization must have felt like. Was it exhilarating? Was it terrifying? I think it it came in little bits, right? Um, So right when I'm, the thing that I'm thinking of, the example that I'm thinking of most clearly in your question was when my mom got sick, everyone in my family, like, like everyone, like my sister, my brother, my dad, my grandpa, my mom's dad, um, like all the extended family, they were like, God has a plan. He doesn't put more on us than we can bear. You know, it's, you know, those stories, um, they found comfort in that, that there was a reason, there was a reason behind what was happening um, and what had happened to my mom. And I kept reaching inside myself for, for a belief in that comfort or a belief in that story. And it wasn't there. And that was scary. Like that was really scary. I like reached for God and there was nothing. (laughs) And I was like, Oh no. (laughs) So like that was, but that's all, I feel like that's also maybe a story like, like my family is not a particularly religious family in a lot of ways, but is, I don't even know how to describe it, but there's just like that sort of religious patriarchy, right? Man is the head of the household, et cetera, and so forth, which like plays out in any number of ways. Uh, that script is somewhat flexible, but, but it was like, I lost like the big he capital H he at the center of my life, or at least like somewhere, maybe not at the center, but like, I thought, I thought it was somewhere. <laughs> and then that, and I was like, Oh no, like, what do I do? Who can I talk? And there was no one in my family to talk about that with. So I did what I had been doing for, at that point, it had been like six or seven years. I've been going to therapy, um, just talk therapy, you know, having a uh-huh. lot of feelings and trying to sort it out. Uh, and so I could talk about it in therapy, but there wasn't really anywhere else to talk about it. Therapy and the poems. Like I was writing about it, you know, and I would say that was, there was like the relief of not having to talk to my dad anymore. There was the terror of not, of having an existence that no longer felt anchored to a plan of some kind, amorphous as I think it was for me um, with God. Um, And it felt really lonely. I think that that's one of the feelings I had most often, like in the, like maybe in the next couple of years after my mom was sick, got sick. Um, there was just like this like profound loneliness, like what is life? What does it mean? <laughs> you know, like if there isn't a plan, then like, what's the point? Uh, and I still struggle a little bit with that, but I take comfort in my smallness and that I might be too small to understand. And so that's okay. Like, I don't have to understand the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like just anywhere. because you don't, understand it or know it doesn't mean there isn't one you might just be too too small yeah yeah which I think distinguishes me somewhat from most atheists who I find to be broadly construed the the ones who are public are like kind of obnoxious because they're like we know I'm like nobody knows right Um, how could anyone know yeah like we don't we don't know I I think the, the there was such comfort that God gave like my family, like 
to just feel like there was something, there was someone in control of what was happening because it felt so big and so out of control. Um, and so like, I was like out sort of in a different kind of orbit by myself. And eventually what happened is I worked on my friendships. Um, and the friends that I made in grad school, um, at, like in Nashville are like, they're still like my, my best friends, like my best friend I made in, in Texas. Uh, and that was, she's really wonderful. Um, and, but like the, like my core group of friends I made in those following years. And it really was a commitment to like these women of like showing up, listening, you know, like letting their stuff be their stuff and my stuff be my stuff, like figuring out that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I know other people, I, I had this, <laughs> I had this like feeling when I was in my mid twenties, where if my friend, I have friends who would disappear when they got upset. Like they would just like go away. And I would think, Oh, I did something because that was the dynamic that I experienced in my family. Like if I, if I did something that upset my mom, she just like wouldn't talk to me. Um, and so like my friends would like go away and I would think, Oh, I did something. And eventually I was like, oh, I didn't do anything. They're just living their lives and they have their own things. And I'll, I can just tell them I'm here and I love them whenever they're ready. And that was like so freeing, <laughs> you know, to like let other people's things be their things, to let myself be my stuff and to show up for them in the ways that I could that felt healthy and safe. Um, again, not a dynamic in my family, <laughs> though, like at all. When you take away the things that, like, historically in your family have been the center of life, whether it's a man, some man, or God, you know, see the, mm -hmm. the abstract male, um, and then there's this vacuum at the center, and then you start to kind of repopulate with these other, these other things, you, mm -hmm. you, with these other, I don't know, ways of being or the, these other kinds of gravity. Um, it's really beautiful, even though I can imagine like you're describing that it feels like lonely or f like floating in orbit or something for a while. Mm -hmm. How did that, um, how did it change your writing? Did it make you feel freer when you were writing? Hmm. I, it must have. I would say... I became more interested in my thinking and I, and part of that definitely had to do with being in a PhD program, trying to figure out like what's a dissertation and why would anyone write one? Uh, <laughs> and why would, and what, like, why would I do such a thing when I like poems and my poems were, especially at that time, quite short, they're still short, but they were very short at that time. Like, why would I write 200 pages of prose? Like, why would I do that? <laughs> There's no reason. Like no one wants that. And <laughs> except that I did because I wanted, I wanted the doctorate. So I was like, okay. Um, and what I was interested in that project, um, <laughs> I've come to terms with this project uh, in a number of different ways. And I, I think this actually has to do with, um, so this is going to be circuitous, but there's a point here. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So my dissertation was about um, constructions of white masculinity 
in a white manhood in contemporary American Westerns like uh, Lonesome Dove and Brokeback Mountain and 310 Appaloosa or whatever. Uh, and on the surface, my reason for doing that was uh, it was far, I felt like it wouldn't hurt me. It wouldn't be a dissertation that would hurt me by dealing with like the horrors of American history. And because obviously, like if I were, if I were like a, a scholar um, and I knew that was my path, I would have gone into like African-American studies, but that's hard in a way that I wasn't ready to take on. And I just wanted to read the literature and love the literature um, and not have to reckon with some of the things that one would need to reckon with. And so I was writing about white guys um, and Westerns. And I kind of started, I understood why I was writing about Westerns to some degree. Is that I like the American West. I'm from LA, which is like the home of the movie set, American West. <laughs> like, um, but not like the, not the real, whatever the real West is, right? Whatever we imagine is the real West. Um, but what I come to understand is that in my argument that white men were people with complex interior lives, but we have scripts about white, and, and I think that's true for whatever it's worth. Um, but the script that we have about white men is very flat. Right, like straight white men, like straight cis white men um, don't talk about their feelings. Uh, they do, they don't say, whatever. There's like, a, there's like all of these stories. And I was like, none of these stories are true because I was just like looking at these dudes and listening to these dudes. And they were just like talking and talking about their feelings all the time. And I was like, so what I realized <laughs> is that this was like a dry run at thinking about the poems that now make up the renunciations which is that the project of that book was to look at someone who um, had a lot of power in my life. So one of the projects, right, was to think about my dad or, and a figure like my dad, right, who had a lot of power in my life, almost like a god, right? So in some ways, like analogous to how um, white men can function in the U.S., right, in our sort of cultural landscape, um, and then what would it what would it mean to actually interrogate that figure, not as a flat figure, but as a person with depth, with experiences, with vulnerability, not to not to forgive, but to understand more fully, like not as a project of forgiveness. Right. Not to say, oh, I understand why you made these choices. or I don't understand why you made these choices. But here are some of the things that might have led to that. So like with, um, and I think this is also true for my dad, but one of the things that I've, I've thought about in my dissertation was just the social conditioning of men and boys in the U.S. across race. Like it's, it's a very, there isn't a lot of room for feeling in the social conditioning and it's enforced across gender. Like everyone has a, can, can police a boy or a man who's crying, right? Like, oh, he's not. And so... Um, but like that, that creates a, a person who, or that limits the possibility for the fullness of feeling. And that can lead to, I don't know, like a, a lack of connection with other people, I think. And so when I was thinking about like my dad's history, as I was writing the poems that eventually ended up in the book, um, I was like, what do I know about him? And how can I think through what I know about him in a way that feels 
generous, as generous as I can be, you know, to see if there's some kind of sense in here. And I didn't find any sense. But that practice reassured me that my perception was correct. That my dad is a terrible person. And so, like, that's what I came out with, right? Like, on the other side, I went through this, like, intense process of thinking about him as a child, um, writing poems that imagined a person like my dad as a child, right? Um, it's not all his history. It's not exactly his history. But it's similar, similar enough. Um, but the point, you know, it's just like, how does one make the decision to, to hurt a child in that way? Like, I don't know. And I was like, is there something in this, this small sort of box of things that I know that can illuminate that? And the answer was no, this is an inconceivable choice, which is what I thought at the beginning, but it felt better at the, on the other side. I was like, sure. Okay. Good job. Right. That's, it's wild to think of the dissertation as having been a dry run for that in part because it's <laughs> such a long, it's such a long <laughs> undertaking. It's very, that's very thorough um, uh, of a practice run. But I, I also, I don't know, I'm just sort of moved by this idea of wanting to like study and unpack figures that do damage you know like whether we're talking about white men in america writ large mm -hmm. especially like the white man as as like portrayed in is captured by the western and like the mm -hmm. ethos of the western like that's mm -hmm. a figure that does a lot of damage mm -hmm. um and then turning that impulse toward your dad um I'm I'm just moved by that as an as an impulse behind your writing because I feel like a lot of people reasonably feel like the, their desire is to sort of like condemn or keep distance from um, mm -hmm. figures like that. Yeah, I mean, which I think is correct, also. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but so, like when I so when I thought about when I was thinking about like the cowboy as represented in Western. Um, one, there are like many things that I observed that I had never thought about that that's a wage paying job. It's a hard job. Um, it's a job without, um, it's a job that favored the single man over the man with family. Right. But usually the figures in Westerns that we call cowboys weren't cowboys. They were like law enforcement. <laughs> so it would be like someone coming in to clear up the town because they were bad guys or whatever. And we know a bad guy because he has a black hat. We know the good guy because he has a, a whitish hat. Um, <laughs> it's, it's nonsense. But the thing about that figure is that that figure is separate from the town, is separate from community, is not connected to community values. They just come in to clean up things, right? So, like, they're really flat. And, but there's there was something this matters and doesn't matter, but there was something about like Westerns in the early 2000s that I think spent more time with the camera on these figures where they were talking. Like even something like the assassination, assassination of Jesse James by the coward, Robert Ford, which is not a, which is a movie that I, I found and find beautiful, but can't watch anymore. Cause that's a lot of Casey Affleck. Um, <laughs> just like, can't do it. Uh, but you know, Brad Pitt was acting, which is not always something that he chooses to do. 
Uh, and <laughs> there's so much talking. Like they're just talking about family. They're talking about wanting to get me. I don't know. Like, it's just like, there are all of these, like, just like really soft parts of that movie with these men who are actually awful, you know? And I'm, I'm interested, I guess I was interested in that contrast and it wasn't a direct, like, Oh, I'm going to think about these white guys so I can think about my dad. But I did have the thought not very long ago where I was like, is, are these two things connected? How are they connected? And, and so one of the things that getting a degree in English, a grad degree in English um, did was it gave me room to think about where my thinking was located culturally, right? Where my relationship to these figures, white men, my dad, might like myself, other women, straight women, white women, black women, right? Like where are these things like located? Where did, where are my thoughts are springing from? What is the cultural narrative that I'm buying into or resisting? And that, that degree, that process of study, that practice of study, I mean, I wasn't great at it. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't great. Um, Cause I'm not a scholar. I think for a while I was like, I'll tell people I'm a scholar and maybe they'll believe me, but I'm not really the poet, um, which is plenty. plenty. Uh, but that gave me some language for thinking about myself. And my, you know, like, I just like got to spend time figuring out like, where does this come from? Why do we believe this? Where does this come from? Why do I believe this? Do I believe this? Am I sure? <laughs> and it's been, I feel like that was the gift of that process. And it was a gift that I wouldn't have gotten I would have missed out on if I had done what my dad wanted me to do, which was to push away what I needed or what I was interested in and bring my life into the, under his control, really, because that's what it would have yeah. been, you know. How does it feel to be sort of on the other side, you know, having finished this study? I mean, it's this this the process that you started then and that in a way you're you sort of continued through this book mm -hmm. um it does it yeah how does it how does it, it feel sort of like there's there's a and maybe not an an ending but just an inflection point in that narrative arc right now because you've finished this book of poetry um how how does it feel right now it's hard to say. I'm not sure. I'm glad I did the work. I don't know. There's one part of me that's like I ended up where I began, right? And I and I've I said this to my dad's face recently, which I think both of us. I I was doing my best not to say it, <laughs> and he just kept giving me openings to say it. You know, but like he's a terrible person. Um, I knew that before I started this like project. I, I guess I understood it more fully to some degree on the other side. Um, and I worried in the writing that I was as that I could be cruel in the ways that he was cruel. And I think that I, 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 in the writing was to some degree. Um, and I, maybe that's I mean, I guess that's just like a hard question for me to answer because it, it doesn't change anything that happened. It doesn't change it. Um, and it didn't actually change my relationship to the trauma. 
um, in so far, except that like working on it, bringing it into the light, thinking about it as something that I could share with other people and maybe they would feel less alone because that's what work, similar work has done for me. But, you know, like I, I live with the memories, you know, they haven't gone anywhere. Um, they're not as scary as they were. Uh, I think like, but I think that's, just, I feel like that's mostly therapy, honestly. <laughs> that's like, I mean, the writing has helped, but I do think therapy has done a lot of work there uh, to help me articulate some of what has felt so, so damaging. And to, and to, you know, think about the ways I can take care of myself now, the ways that I do take, take care of myself now. Um, and the writing was a way of moving through a process of investigation, you know? to like ask about your how actively you thought about this book as contributing to a canon a canon of literature that is about certain kinds of abuse and trauma mm-hmm. um whether whether that felt motivating to you or if it was just something you were um you know doing on your own as as a project and then thought about later how um yeah, whether to, to what extent you felt like you wanted to be contributing to that, you know, group of voices. Mm-hmm. I think when I decided to make it a, a book, right, like that's when I decided that or when I when I tried to conceive of it as being a part of a larger conversation and a part of a large, larger conversation that made it easier for me to process like that larger conversation made it easier for me to process some of my feelings around having been abused. Um, like I, I worked with the courage to heal, like the, that book and the, and the workbook. Um, and just like reading poems in there, just like, I was like in my thirties, you know? And I was just like shocked, even though like I read like a number of those poets before there was something about reading it in that context that as a poet gave me license or something to like, to be intentional in the writing of the poems. Uh, And so while I was working on the poems, which seemed to be coming, whether I wanted them to or not, uh, and I did not want them to come. uh, I was like, well, how do I take care of myself in this? And how can I extend that care to my speaker in the hopes of extending that care to the reader? And that became a part of the practice of writing the poems is like taking care of my speaker, like not make, like my speaker doesn't have to say anything that feels too hard to say. And there are lots of things that that, I write about in the book that are hard to say, but some things are too hard. So I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just bracket those off. Those, those words won't appear. Right. Um, how can I take care of, of this speaker by being kind, you know, like only exploring what feels safe to explore uh, and like modeling that and trying to like be clear about it, <laughs> like in the, actually in the poem. 
like that was such a like to myself like that was there was something about practicing that level of care with this figure you know that is that is similar to me but that is not me right a sort of constructed like certain lens through which to understand like a, like some events right um from my life uh, i don't know i that that felt so helpful it felt like a, a step in the process of, of of taking care and because i was working in that mode it felt possible to share the poems and when I had like, I had like a, a there were so many, <laughs> and I was like, okay, I think this might make up part of a book, not a book on its own, because that would be too much, but it, it feels like it would, it could, it could be a part of something. And my hope, once I got to that step and sort of acknowledged that that was what I was doing and what I wanted to do, my hope was that it would contribute in the way that the poems that I read in The Courage to Heal and other poetry collections, um, like, had done for me, you know? So, like, my story isn't super uncommon. It's not a strange story. It's not an exceptional story. It's, it's a very, it's really regular, which is sad. Like, that's its own sort of sadness, its own sort of tragedy, but it's not special. And there was something about coming to terms with it not being special that gave me such relief. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.